This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Helen Hardacre, Reichauer Institute Professor of Japanese Religions and Society in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Dr. Hardacre is the author most recently of Shinto, A History, published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Dr. Hardiker, thank you for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your invitation. You recently published this book, Shinto, A History, uh, from Oxford University Press in 2016. And, and of, of course, previously you'd published Shinto in the state. And so can you talk about what's happening with Shinto in Japan around the turn of the Meiji Restoration and then throughout the Meiji period? Certainly. Well, what was happening at the end of the Edo period, of course, represented the culmination of trends that in some cases had begun much earlier. For example, I'd like to mention three things. The development of popular pilgrimage to the Issei shrines and to a lesser extent to other shrines, the development of kokugaku thought, and the development of Shinto-derived new religious movements. So if we think of how the ground for Meiji Shinto was prepared during the Edo period, we could point to a popularization of practices relating to shrines and Shinto observances. So I believe your listeners may be familiar with the phenomenon of pilgrimage to the Issei shrines, but this becomes a very widespread practice during the Edo period. And at that time, the Issei shrines had a number of proselytizers who divided the country, with the exception of Okinawa, Hokkaido, and the northernmost portion of Honshu, into districts where they would travel periodically, usually annually, or sometimes biannually, to solicit donations for the shrines and to invite the residents of those territories to come to Issei as pilgrims. When they came as pilgrims, they would arrange to stay in the inns or accommodations maintained by the Oshi who came to their area to collect funds. So a sort of network funneling people into the Issei shrines was established across the country, and this had the effect over time of making the populace aware of the Issei shrines, of giving them the idea that everyone could and in fact should make a pilgrimage there in the course of a lifetime, and popularized the worship of the Issei kami on a broad scale. Meanwhile, in the cities, while that was going on, we also find the widespread popularization of the worship of Inari, originally considered a rice god whose messenger is the fox, 
Inari became widely worshipped among popular society during the Edo period. And so, for example, by the middle of the 19th century, we find well over 100 Inari shrines in the city of Edo and a comparable concentration in Osaka. So the worship of kami was being popularized and commercialized on a wide scale in the Edo period. And this is an important part of the background of what we see happening in Meiji. In another dimension, we also see since the 18th century, the development and dissemination of kokugaku thought, national learning, so-called. It arises originally as a study of the ancient classics, particularly the Kojiki and Manyoshu, but not limited to those works, not necessarily as a Shinto phenomenon. And we also find that Buddhist practitioners of it, such as Keichu, were very important in the formation of it. Motori Norinaga corresponded with a broad range of people across the central part of the country and the West, especially regarding their composition of poetry, and by that means spread and developed his interpretations of ancient texts, particularly the Kojiki, alongside his personal scholarship, which resulted in solving the mysteries in the first instance of how to read that text. Of course, he was part of a larger group of scholars also engaged in trying to recover an understanding of how the Kojiki should be read, but he became particularly influential among shrine priests based on his correspondence with a number of them and also on his personal acquaintance with the priesthood at Issei. So there develops a kind of association between Kokugaku and Shinto at this early stage, say even in the 18th century, and that then becomes intensified with the advent of Hirata Atsutane and his influence, which becomes particularly important in the mid and late 19th century. Also, the association with shrine priests and the link between Kokugaku and Shinto becomes intensified under his leadership and that of his intellectual heirs. That point is important because some of them were among the earliest officials governing matters relating to Shinto in the early Meiji period. But before getting to that, I'd like to mention a third area of groundwork for Meiji Shinto that we see occurring in the late Edo period, and that is the development of Shinto-derived new religious movements. That is to say, popular movements spreading worship of the kami in a very particular form based on the teachings of a founder. The earliest of these comes to be called Kurozumikyo, 
and is based on the teachings of a figure named Kurozumi Munetada, who was a shrine priest of the Okayama domain, who founded a religious group based upon revelations that he believed he had experienced in 1814. So this means that the phenomenon of religious revelation becomes a feature of Shinto as a whole from the early 19th century. And that is an important factor in its popularization later as well, including in the Meiji period. The founding of Kurozumikyo and similar movements was based, in fact, on the earlier work of proselytizers in whom we can find from the beginning of the Edo period, who, as sole figures, traveled the country and spread the use of the Oharai Norito, or the Great Purification Prayer. This is an ancient prayer, which originally had been a part only of court ceremonial in the ancient period, performed at the end of the sixth month and the end of the twelfth month to purify the court and the capital of pollution and malevolent influence. However, as the prayer spread through popularizers of the Edo period and later through Shinto-derived new religious movements, it comes to be no longer monopolized by the priesthood, but spread among the people as something they would recite on a daily basis. In fact, you can find it recited in great quantity, so that it is recited, it's better, it's believed, to recite it more often, something like the Nembutsu or the Daimoku in Japanese Buddhist practice, where people would have a small cup of dried beans, one full and one empty, and for each recitation of the prayer, move a bean into the empty cup and aim to recite it hundreds, even thousands of times. So this intensification of Shinto practice at a popular level, whether through the popularization of the worship of Inari, pilgrimage to the Issei shrines, the use of Shinto prayers and ceremonial in the Shinto-derived new religious movements, or the spread of kokugaku thought through the Edo period, each form one important building block to help us understand what happens in the Meiji period. So in the Meiji period, we find at the very beginning in 1868, a group of kokugaku scholars and activists given positions in government, they seek to actualize a vision of a new nation, which to them, in their thinking, would rightfully revolve around the emperor's personal observance of worship of the kami in the palace, and this would be mirrored by observances in all the shrines of the country, 
and by the populace as a whole. The result, they believed, would be the creation of a thoroughly harmonious and united country, all focusing their worship of the kami upon the figure of the emperor, who became a linchpin between the earthly and the heavenly realm. So I understand at Harvard you were teaching a class this year called Religion and Society in Edo and Meiji Japan. So could you tell us how how you were structuring this course? What were some of the themes that you were using? What was the kind of narratives that you were going over with the students? Certainly. In terms of that course's emphasis on Shinto, which was one thread of the course, but not the only one, I emphasized the narrative that I began our podcast with, talking about the Edo period as a time when the worship of kami comes to be popularized and commercialized on an unprecedented scale. At the same time, while talking about the Edo period, I stress the interweaving and interpenetration of religious traditions that characterized that era, so that for most people, the worship of Buddhist figures and kami would have been understood as two parts of the same reality, not in contention with each other, not in competition, and not really separate, because as I mentioned, most shrines and temples existed in tandem, in combinatory institutions in which the two were seen as inseparable, different in terms of the face they present, in terms of a particular divinity who might be the central focus of worship in one particular hall, but which were seen as a combined reality, no particular aspect of which could be separated out. It wouldn't have made sense. I also, at the beginning of that course, include a segment on the prohibition of Christianity, which we see come to be enforced heavily at the end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th centuries, the legacy of the hidden Christians who perpetuate their faith in secret right down to the early Meiji period, and uh, also try to acquaint students with the character of Buddhist life in the temples of the Edo period. There was a rule enacted by the shogunate requiring everyone in Japan to be affiliated as a parishioner with a Buddhist temple. This regulation originated with the desire to stamp out Christianity and to ensure that no Christians remained in the country, so the temples were given the job of certifying through a kind of sectarian investigation held each year that the populace was 
affiliated as required to a temple, that everyone was, and that there wasn't any overlap, so people belonged to one and only one temple. This intensified the relationship between Buddhism and local government. It also intensified the sectarian character of Buddhism by comparison with Buddhism in other parts of the world, particularly uh, China and Korea, but also uh, comparisons can be made in Southeast Asia. So the Japanese Buddhist institutions come to be required to police all of the temples of a particular sect. And the shogunate invests considerable authority in the head temples of each one and validates the requirements that each sect makes of its clergy and also of its parishioners. This strengthens the character and institutional uh, strength of the temples across the country, and as I said, uh, creates links between them and local government, and also gives them a kind of authority over their parishioners, because if the temple ref refuses to certify that a household is in good standing, as a parishioner of a temple, that opens the person or the household to uh, larger questions about its standing in the community. Also, temples were invested with the authority to help people get travel documents if they wish to go beyond the borders of the domain where they lived. So, by this means, the character of Japanese Buddhism becomes shaped so that it is, uh, it's the sectarian identity of any temple is an extremely important identification marker, and so that the position of the Buddhist clergy within a community is highly authoritative. And this then uh, becomes part of what establishes the character overall of Buddhism during the Edo period. I then trace these institutional links to uh, primary documents that we can find in translation suitable for an undergraduate class of Buddhist figures such as Hakuin a uh, Soto Zen figure who was both an artist, a diarist, and the uh, progenitor of very important uh, intellectual uh, positions about the Zen tradition and the training of Zen clerics. I find that students react very uh, strongly and appreciatively when they can read the works of religious figures as those figures themselves expressed what they were trying to achieve. This is true 
for Buddhist figures, Shinto figures, Confucian figures, wherever I can find primary expressions of the character of religious life at a certain time, I try to put those in students' hands and uh, invite them to interpret what is being said and to relate to them as, uh, as they will, to give them uh, a sense of some personal connection to these figures. The Edo period is striking for the relative abundance of sources like that. And, of course, as we come closer to the present, there are more and more documents of that kind. So uh, from what I'm saying so far, I think you can see that as I approach the study of religion in the Edo period, I put an emphasis on religion and society, questions of what religion meant in the lives of particular individuals and communities, and the structuring of religious institutions as having a very important influence on the character of religious life overall. So that is a theme I trace through the Meiji period. When coming to Meiji, a very important development, of course, is the beginning of widespread foreign relations between Japan and numerous Western powers. As that goes along, treaties, of course, are uh, concluded. And in those treaties, Western powers typically seek permission for Christian missionaries to proselytize within Japan. And in order for those arrangements to be uh, established, it became necessary to translate Western language words for the concept of religion into Japanese. And it's only in the Meiji period and originally in the context of foreign relations that the modern term for religion, shukyo, becomes established as part of the vernacular. Up until that time, more... Uh, uh, words that had kind of a broad but non-specific character, such as shinko, which we would translate as faith, were used to describe the religious life. But the concept of shukyo, which implies a pan-human phenomenon of which there are local variations, such as Buddhism uh, Confucianism, Shinto, Islam, Judaism, and so on, that notion was established only in the Meiji period. And the fact of it not having uh, a millennium or more of popular usage meant that it was novel. And uh, some time was necessary for, uh, in a philosophical vein to come to an understanding of what that concept would mean in Japan and in institutional terms to position 
the religious traditions of Japan in relation to it in one way or another. The solution found during the Meiji period was that Buddhism, Christianity, and the Shinto-derived new religious movements would be considered part of Shukyo. But Shrine Shinto and the observances for the kami in the imperial palace were placed in another kind of conceptual box as non-religious, and that view came into government administration of shrines and provoked uh, quite a lot of debate, some of which echoes even today concerning whether Shinto should rightfully be considered a religion. There were uh, government bureaucrats who were very worried about how Shinto should be uh, positioned, especially after the promulgation in 1889 of the Meiji Constitution, in which the Japanese people are granted conditional freedom of religious belief. That is to say, religious belief was to be a matter of individual thought, preference, and conscience, except where there was some danger uh, to the public order. This conditional character of the granting of religious freedom was based in part upon the reading of other constitutions in effect in the world at that time, as Meiji scholars and bureaucrats consulted the constitutional provisions for religion made in European and the United States Constitution. But another aspect of their thinking was the belief stemming originally from the Kokugaku persuasions that I was speaking of earlier, that Shinto, the worship of the kami, and respect for shrines and the emperor, is not properly speaking a matter of choice or preference, but is something that all Japanese should be expected to follow. So, that perspective put placed Shinto in a different category from the religions, but produced a lively debate among scholars who pointed to the character of religious observances common at shrines, such as going there to pray for the birth of a child, recovery from illness, for any variety of this-worldly benefits, so-called, and to expect that their prayers would be fulfilled. That has virtually no difference from the type of prayers that might be made, placed before uh, the Christian God or Christian saints or any of a variety of Buddhist divinities, scholars recognized, and so they said, what are you talking about? How can you say Shinto is not religious? Look what goes on at the shrines. 
So a lively debate ensued, though the uh, bureaucratic position was to toe the line and hold that Shinto is not a religion. So this debate comes to structure much of what we see in terms of Shinto and its development in the Meiji period and subsequently uh, questions that become particularly pointed once Shinto becomes a part of the colonial administration and shrines are built in the overseas territories, raising the question, can colonial subjects be expected to worship at shrines? If they do, are they to be thought of as Japanese if the colony has now become a part of the empire, or should they be held in a different category at a distance? Questions like that arose. For other religious traditions in Japan at the time, to uh, come up with an understanding of how they should position themselves relative to the state and things that it was or was not doing with respect to religion was extremely important also for the development of Buddhism and Japanese Christianity. A couple decades ago, you edited this New Directions in the Study of Meiji Japan volume that myself as a, as a historian of the Meiji period, of course, spent uh, many hours going through, as I'm sure many other people have. And this being the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of Meiji now, and, you know, kind of comparing 125 to 150, and, and maybe what might a updated Meiji of our time look like from today's perspective? Right. Thank you very much. That's a, a terrific question. As we look back to 25 years ago and think about how the study of Meiji might be envisioned in a different way for the future, I imagine that there will be many initiatives throughout the world of Japanese studies in this and coming years to determine directions forward that would be appropriate in each of the disciplines where we find Japanese studies. Speaking solely for religious studies, I believe it would be very beneficial to begin an initiative like that in a collaborative way so that specialists in Buddhism would combine their efforts with those working on Shinto, Christianity, the new religious movement, Shugendo, all of the religious traditions, and uh, put their heads together uh, and see what they would come up with without wanting to prejudge the form that might take or the outcome. I think if I were lucky enough to be part of such an endeavor, I would focus on enthronement ritual. One area of very significant change for religion that was not really reflected in the volume you kindly referred to a few moments ago was the changed 
character of imperial ritual and the implications for subsequent religious life in Japan. I'm interested in enthronement ritual because the uh, culminating aspect of coronation ritual in Japan, which is called the Daijosai, was held for Emperor Meiji in Tokyo for the first time. And next year, following the abdication of reigning Emperor Akihito, we will see the enthronement of now Crown Prince and Emperor-to-be Naruhito beginning on May the 1st in 2019 and culminating with elaborate ceremonial again in Tokyo in November of 2019. Enthronement ritual is an occasion for widespread celebrations at all of Japan's religious institutions, but especially the shrines and the Shinto-derived new religious movements. If past precedent is any guide, they will commission significant new works of art, whether these be paintings, screens, sculpture, other forms of art that I believe will be of interest for art history. Likewise, the coverage of the enthronement rituals will take place in a new media environment targeting a new generation of Japanese young people who may be taking the occasion for the first time in their lives to think seriously about the character and significance of a monarchy in Japan, which is a constitutional uh, democracy, and will give them an opportunity to address the question of the symbol emperor. As you may know, the post-war constitution in Article One states that the emperor shall be the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people. That is a totally, that's entirely different from what we find in the Meiji Constitution, where the emperor is named head of state, supreme commander of Japan's military forces, and is characterized as sacred and inviolable. Emperor Akihito is the first to have been enthroned under the symbol emperor concept, and he has shaped it and made it his own. It will be a, a great focus for Japanese studies to think about what the next emperor will do. Will he continue in his father's footsteps? Will he initiate new directives? return to our earlier conceptions of the emperor? And how will Japan change as a result? We also should put a special focus on young people and the media and ask which sectors of the Japanese media 
will be permitted to be present and film at which aspects of the enthronement ceremonies? What role will social media play? They were not even developed and disseminated at the time of the last enthronement in 1990. So a whole new media sphere, a whole new generation will come into being in or come into focus for Japanese studies through the enthronement ceremonies of 2019. The implications for Shinto and will be particularly pointed as the enthronement ceremonies will uh, bring in new and younger generations of shrine priests to be a part of these ceremonies, whether directly or indirectly, will prompt them to think again about the, the connection and significance of the imperial institution for Shinto. Likewise, for all aspects of Japanese religions, I believe that the enthronement rites and uh, perhaps also the study of how they have changed since the Meiji period could be a very good focus for considering what a new look at Meiji might uh, provide, what new insights and knowledge we might gain in the sphere of religious studies. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.